The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Throughout history, there have been many wicked rulers that have terrified people on earth. Some of these rulers have even been so wicked as to demand that their subjects worship them. One of these wicked rulers is a man you might not know, but he was a king significant in the history of the Bible. He was prophesied about in the book of Daniel, and what he did was a foreshadowing of what's yet to come. About 170 years before Jesus was born, A foreign king ruled over Judea and did something in Jerusalem so repulsive and despicable that it shocked the consciences of the Jews and they revolted against the king. This revolt eventually became a bloody revolution, which resulted in the Jews regaining their independence and reversing the abominations of the king. The ruler who did a horrible thing in Jerusalem was King Antiochus IV. But the name he chose for himself was Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means manifest or visible. He considered himself Theos Epiphanes, the manifestation of God on earth. As you can imagine, he was widely considered to be deranged. His critics called him not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimenes. One letter difference, but a world of difference in meaning. Epimenes means moonstruck. In other words, their nickname for him was Antiochus the Madman. That was a fitting description for him. Antiochus was the heir of a dynasty in the Greek Empire. But when he ascended to the throne, the growing power of Rome caused him to greatly fear. Now fear in the heart of a man who is mad in the mind is a dangerous combination. Those in his kingdom would suffer because of it. And part of his kingdom included Jerusalem and the surrounding land. And he considered this area to be a crucial buffer between his kingdom and Rome. And so he decided he needed to unify his kingdom by forcing everyone in it to adopt Greek customs and culture. The technical term for this is Hellenization. Well, the problem with Hellenizing Judea was that it was occupied by Jews. And the Jews, of course, had their own customs. They had their own culture and their own religion, none of which was compatible with the myths of Greek gods. Nevertheless, just as would be expected of a tyrant, he determined to Hellenize the Jews one way or another, even by force. In the summer of 167 B.C., he began to enforce Hellenization by issuing several decrees in his kingdom. He banned all Jewish feasts and festivals. He made keeping the Sabbath 
illegal. He forbade the circumcision of children, of boys. He ordered the destruction of all copies of the Torah, God's law. And He ordered the Jews to offer sacrifices of unclean animals at the temple. In summary, He made it illegal for the Jews to obey God's Old Testament laws and He defiled the Jews in the process. His aim was to eliminate Jewish worship and make the Jews worship like Greeks and so assimilate them into their culture. Well, naturally, these decrees angered the Jews. But the penalty for disobeying Antiochus' orders was death. And he was known to be a ruthless king. Once Antiochus put down a revolt in Jerusalem by slaughtering 80,000 men, imprisoning another 40,000, and selling as slaves yet 40,000 more. Jews who violated his decrees were subject to harsh penalties and gruesome deaths. But what sparked the revolt and eventually led to a revolution was what Antiochus did a few months later. In December of 167 B.C., he placed an idol of Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and sacrificed pigs on the altar of the burnt offering. Pigs being unclean animals. Under Old Testament law, this unclean sacrifice effectively defiled the entire temple. Unwilling to take this oppression any longer, a group of Jewish fighters rose up against the king in what history now knows as the Maccabean Revolt. And eventually, they recaptured Jerusalem and reestablished their worship there. Now, what's really interesting about this story is that Antiochus's abominations were foretold over 350 years before in the book of Daniel. In fact, the details of the prophecy in Daniel's book are so precise that Throughout the years, liberal theologians have argued that the book of Daniel couldn't possibly have been written that long ago, but that it must have been written after the events took place because they're so precise. So that it's not prophecy, but simply history. Turn over to Daniel chapter 11 for just a moment. And let me show you this prophecy. In this chapter... An angel showed Daniel a vision about the future rulers of Persia and Greece. And beginning in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, he was told of a contemptible man who would rise to become king. This king's military exploits are described in great detail in verses 22 to 30. Now, notably in verse 31, the angel revealed to Daniel that this king, who we now know as Antiochus IV, would do a horrible thing. It says in verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering 
and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. This is exactly what Antiochus did. The abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation as it's elsewhere referred to in Scripture, describes Antiochus setting up the idol of Zeus in the temple and sacrificing swine as a burnt offering to the Greek god. Desolation means to make lay waste or to empty. This desecration of the temple laid waste the holy sacrifices and emptied the temple of holy worship. What Antiochus did is not just significant in the history of the Jews, but it's significant because it foreshadows the future. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. And in this chapter, Jesus spoke to His disciples about future tribulation that would come upon the earth. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4-14, to He said that this tribulation will be marked by war, false Christs, false prophets, and persecution of God's people. In verse 8, He calls these troubles just the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains. The first half of this tribulation time period will be like the beginning contractions a mother experiences before giving birth. But the birth pains will only get worse. In the second half of the tribulation, persecution will increase. In fact, it will get so bad that Israel will have to flee for their lives. Jesus says in verse 21 that this will be a time of great tribulation. Now, what will mark the transition between the beginning of the birth pains and the great tribulation? What will be the sign that Israel should look for to know when to run for their lives? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 15 and 16. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When the abomination of desolation occurs, then Israel must head for the hills to save their lives. This is stunning. Jesus said that during the coming time of tribulation, there will be yet another abomination of desolation that defiles the holy place, that is the temple. And that this abomination will be patterned after the one seen in Daniel's prophecy. What Antiochus did in 167 B.C. foreshadows what's yet to come. A new temple in Jerusalem will be defiled yet again by a wicked ruler. What is this future abomination of desolation? And who will do this? Well, these questions can be answered from more than one passage of Scripture, including the one we began studying last week 
in 2 Thessalonians. So once again, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The church in Thessalonica was a church afflicted with much suffering. As we learned last week, they were afflicted not only by persecution, but also by false teachers. Sometime after Paul left Thessalonica, false teachers came and they told the church that the day of the Lord had come. Hearing this greatly disturbed the church. And they knew from Paul's teaching about the day of the Lord. They knew this would be an unprecedented time of God's outpouring of wrath on the earth in judgment against sin. And so to hear the false teachers say that the day of the Lord had come, that they were living in that time period, unsettled their minds and caused fear in their hearts. But it wasn't true. The day of the Lord had not yet come. Paul had told them this in his first letter, that the day of the Lord wasn't for these believers that they weren't destined for God's wrath, that they wouldn't experience it. But this church was apparently vulnerable to this false teaching because of the persecution that they suffered. Their persecution seemed like proof that the false teachers were right, that they were experiencing the Lord's judgment on earth. But they had been deceived. And so when Paul heard that they had become shaken in mind and alarmed as a result of this deception, he wrote this second letter to correct the false teaching. This is the way to battle deception. The countermeasure to deception, lies, and falsehoods is always truth. By knowing the truth and holding fast to the truth, this church wouldn't be deceived any longer. And so in chapter 2, Paul tells them the truth about the future. Truth he had taught them previously. And he assured the church that the day of the Lord had not yet come because two events must come beforehand. Since these two events hadn't yet occurred, then the day of the Lord hadn't yet come. What are the two events? that precede the Lord's outpouring of judgment on the earth. We'll look again at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The two events are the rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. 
Now who is this man? And what is this rebellion? Those are interrelated questions. To answer one leads to the answer of the other. So let's answer these two questions in turn. First, who is the man of lawlessness? Well, the first thing we should observe is that he is a man. He's not a movement. He's not a force. He's not a spirit. He's not the devil. He is a man. He is a man characterized by lawlessness. That's to say that he rebels against law and authority. That's his identity. In Scripture, this word lawlessness always refers to rebellion against God's law and authority. He is insubordinate to God. He refuses to obey. He rejects God's law. He despises God's will. This is not an ordinary sinner. He is the embodiment of everything opposed to God. It would be fair to describe him as the worst sinner who will ever live. Notice he's also called in verse 3 the son of destruction. The phrase son of is a Hebrew way of describing the essential character or even the destiny of a person. He is characterized or destined for destruction. That word can either refer to ruin or eternal damnation. So Paul is either saying that he is characterized by the terrible destruction that he will cause, or that he is destined for damnation. Which is why older translations call him the son of perdition, the son of hell, essentially. Well, either way, both are true. It's notable that a related word for destruction is found in Revelation 9.11, where either Satan or one of Satan's demonic lieutenants is called Apollyon, which means destroyer. So to call this man the son of destruction is probably a way to link him to Satan. And Paul makes that connection explicit in verse 9 where he says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. He is satanically empowered. Essentially, this man will be the son of Satan. The judgment he will deserve can only be compared to the only other person described in Scripture as the son of destruction. In John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus prayed to the Father on behalf of His disciples, While I was with them, I kept them in Your name which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, who was Jesus referring to? Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And we might consider Judas the worst of sinners because of his betrayal. But there is one to come who will be even worse. Now, Paul didn't need to describe this man any further because according to verse 5, he had taught the Thessalonian church about this man before. 
They would be familiar with the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. They'd heard his teaching on this man repeatedly when he was in Thessalonica. He's a man who can only be described because no man yet knows his name. But he is described in other ways throughout Scripture. He's called the little horn in Daniel 7. He's called the king of boldface in Daniel 8. He's called the prince who is to come in Daniel 9. He's called the beast from the sea in Revelation 13. But the name he is best known by comes from 1 John 2.18. He is the Antichrist. That name or that title is simply a transliteration of the Greek word. It's a compound word consisting of the prefix anti, which means against or in the place of. And the Greek word Christos, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Antichrist is one who comes against Christ. He comes and presents Himself in place of Christ. As Jesus was the Son of God, this man, the Son of Satan, will come in the place of Christ. That's how He'll present Himself. According to verse 3, one day this man, the Antichrist, will be revealed. For now, his identity remains hidden. So all contemporary speculation about who this man is is utter nonsense. He won't be identifiable until a time when the Lord allows. We don't know when he'll be born or if he's already been born. We don't know his nationality or his ethnicity. But at the time ordained by God, He will come and His true identity, His true character will be uncovered and exposed. So who is this man of lawlessness? Well, the answer is that He is the figure known as the Antichrist among the various other titles in Scripture. The second and related question in this passage is, what is the rebellion? What is the rebellion? The word rebellion in verse 3 comes from a Greek word from which we get the word apostasy. Generally, the Greek word refers to a defiant defection from authority. A defiant defection from authority. For example, in Greek literature, it was used of political and military rebellions, defiant defections from authority. In a spiritual sense, the word can refer to a defection or abandonment of faith. It is a defect against the law and authority of God and to reject Him. In this context, that's the sense of the word here. Paul indicates that there will be rebellion against God that precedes God's judgment upon the earth. Now notice that he doesn't just say that there will be a rebellion, but that prior to the day of the Lord, there will be the rebellion. In other words, Paul is pointing to a specific and unique event 
that will occur in the future. The rebellion. A time marked out. An event that is decreed. This rebellion is related to the revealing of the man of lawlessness. It's not an event that just happens to coincide with his revelation. It's actually something that he does. Look again at verses 3 and 4. The rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. The rebellion is what's described in verse 4. To begin with, he will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, he will be hostile to all religion. All religion and spiritual practice he will oppose. But at the same time, he will exalt himself. That's why he will oppose all worship of other gods. He will want all worship for himself. Daniel writes about this in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Eventually, according to Revelation 17, verse 16, He'll conspire with ten other rulers to destroy all the world's false religious systems. But he won't stop with opposing false gods. Verse 4 says he will actually proclaim himself to be God. The word proclaim was used in Greek literature as a technical term for appointing someone to public office. Likely in some sort of formal public act, he will appoint himself as the one and only true God. He will install Himself to that office of deity. This demonstrates the depth of His arrogance. No man will ever be more full of pride than the Antichrist to come. In Revelation 13, John records the vision he was given of the Antichrist, who is called the beast of the sea in that chapter. And he was shown that the Antichrist will dominate the earth with military power and he will receive worship from all over the world. We read in Revelation 13, verse 3, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The beast being the Antichrist. And they worshiped the dragon. Chapter 12 tells us that the dragon is Satan. For he had given authority to the beast So, Antichrist gets his authority from Satan. And they worshipped. That's the people of the whole earth marveling at him. They worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority 
for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling. For three and a half years, 42 months, He'll be allowed to continue blaspheming the name of God. The Antichrist's mouth will pour out the great pride in his heart. He'll say great things about himself. He'll boast in himself. Daniel 7 says that the Antichrist will have a mouth speaking great things and the sound of great words will come from his lips. To speak great things means to speak boastfully, arrogantly, pompously. He'll even think of himself as greater than God. Again, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says he shall speak words against the Most High. He'll oppose God openly. He'll slander God, speak false words about who God is and what He has done. What He'll say about God will be jaw-dropping and unthinkable, so filthy and foul, so shameful and scandalous, so crude and contemptible. The pride in His heart will be demonstrated in what He will do. Again, verse 4 says that He will take His seat in the temple of God. The word temple refers to the inner court of the temple complex where sacrifices are given and the holy place is located. Currently, there is no such temple in Jerusalem, which only means that by the time this event occurs, there will be. When He comes, the Antichrist will take His seat in the temple. In a place that doesn't belong to Him. He will sit down in the temple as if He were God. The Antichrist will be the greatest blasphemer the world has ever known. He will demand worship from the world and He will seek to kill anyone who refuses to worship Him according to Revelation 13. So what is the rebellion? The rebellion is the Antichrist's defiant defection from God's authority, which culminates in him declaring himself to be God in the temple. So before the day of the Lord comes, Paul says, there must be two events that precede. The rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Like Antiochus IV, the Antichrist will make an abomination of the temple. He won't desecrate the temple with an idol of Zeus, but with himself as the object of worship. This is the abomination of desolation that Jesus said would come during the future tribulation on the earth. When this happens, Israel must flee to the mountains because the Antichrist will unleash all his demonic hate against them in an attempt to wipe out God's people. But the Antichrist isn't the only one who will come. There is coming one greater than him. One who is good. When the tribulation is over, Christ will come to earth a second time and put down all rebellion, including the Antichrist, on that great day of the Lord.
And so justice will be done on earth. It goes without saying that you don't want to be on earth when the Antichrist comes. And when he does what he has prophesied to do. But even more than that, you don't want to be on earth in a state of unbelief when the Lord comes on His day of judgment. So how can you be certain that you will avoid the wrath of God that is so certain to come? John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The destiny of every person is determined by whether they believe in Christ. Jesus came to this earth to save sinners. He died on a cross for the sins of all who would believe in him, and he rose from the grave in victory over sin, death, and Satan himself. And if you believe in Him, if you trust in Christ alone for salvation, He will save you from the wrath to come and you will be granted eternal life with God. But, if you refuse to believe in Christ, then you will receive God's judgment and eternal damnation. And so trust in Christ and find rest even now for your weary souls and be saved from what's to come. Well, there's much more to study in this passage in the weeks ahead, but for now, may the Lord grant you to believe in Christ and have patience as you wait for His return. Let's pray together. Father, these are terrifying things that are going to come on the face of the earth and your word is clear about these events. They're recorded not once, not twice, but many times. And all of Scripture agrees because it comes from your mouth. And so we can trust your word about what's to come. And we can rest assured that even though there are wars and rumors of wars, even in our day, that the day of the Lord has not yet come. Your day of terrible judgment where You will pour out Your wrath upon sinners on earth, has not come, but it will come. But we're thankful that there is One to come who is greater than all of Satan's henchmen, including the Antichrist. We're thankful that Jesus Himself will come and He will call up His saints to, together with Him in a cloud and bring them to heaven before the great outpouring of the tribulation on the earth. And then with His saints, with us, He will bring us down to earth as He establishes His kingdom and His second coming at the end of the tribulation and pour out His judgment on the ungodly. Thank You, Father, for the clarity of these things in Your Word. And we ask that You'd help us to have patience as we wait for our Savior to come for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. 
Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.